Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here, coming to you with another weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. If you haven't already liked and followed our podcast, make sure you do that right now, and we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share us with your friends when you're done. And you know what? Please give a, go ahead and drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, because that'll really help us out. Anyway, today's guest is a good friend of mine from just down the road in Canadian, Texas. We're going to have a great conversation today about corrientes and regenerative grazing and the economics and as a special bonus we're going to focus quite a bit on drones and how he uses drones i even get a little bit on how i use drones in my operation and what that could possibly look like for an enterprise in the future so with that in mind i want you guys to watch out i've got a, a special bonus in mind i'm going to try to get out for you this Thursday. So watch out for that special bonus episode. It should be coming out here in just a few days. That being said, here's my buddy and my co-pilot CK to introduce today's guest. Thank you, Brian. Today we've got Adam Isaacs with Need More Ranching. Adam, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are y'all? Doing great, buddy. Doing great. It's good to see you. It's good to catch up. Um, so really the first thing that's on my mind is what you're kind of most famous for lately is that New York Times article. Yeah, it was um that was a treat. It was cool to get to to show people what we do, especially New Yorkers and uh folks that have no idea what uh agriculture even looks like and where their food comes from and we've gotten lots of great feedback. I mean, we had I talked to a gentleman in Somaliland on the phone uh to ex-professors in Washington and um, wow. it's opening some doors and it's been really cool. It's been a, a neat opportunity. Share some more of that feedback. I'm 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 interested. Like, you know, is it from unexpected directions? Uh yeah, for sure. I mean it was from people who just had general questions like wanting to get into agriculture and uh or maybe they had a, a little bit but they were young and just had basic questions. Um I, I had, you know, people in the oil and gas industry saying, hey, my, my, you know, dad's got a place and he ranches and I'm wanting to get into it, but I just really don't know, you know, how or what. And um, so, you know, folks like that, um, it's, there's been, you know, more feedback than really we expected it. There's a lot of people too that, that reached to that I had no idea it would have reached, uh, you know, ranchers in South Central Kansas that mm -hmm. had no idea read the New York Times. And this is not talking about you, Brian, but <laughs> some other people is like, I would not have expected you to have read that. But uh, no, it's been good. Yeah, that that actually came across my news feed. Mm -hmm. I before, saw it so many times. Before I saw it on Facebook, like I was scrolling my Google News and I saw that there before I saw it on Facebook. I'm like, hey, that's my buddy, Adam. That's cool. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think one of either Kentucky or Tennessee, a U.S. House representative kind of retweeted it. And so it was even kind of getting to the uh, political, you know, White House type stuff. And so that was, I don't know, maybe the president saw it too. I don't, we hope Bill Gates and some of those other big names kind of saw that and made them kind of question mm. and think about what they're doing. So oh, did you see what Bill Gates, okay, are you going to say this? Go ahead. Did you hear what he said about when someone asked, Hey, Bill, why are you buying all this land? And he, what did he say? Because we need to build better seeds. I don't And care. it has I'm nothing not, to do with climate, right? Like, <laughs> it, yeah, tell me that guy's not going to be in for a rude awakening in the next couple of years, right? Yeah. So he, he'll figure it out. I mean, he's got I hope Bill money. Gates sees your article, Adam, because he, he needs to, some enlightenment for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I agree. 
Uh, so, Need More Ranching. That's kind of an interesting name. How'd you guys come up with that? And who is Need um, More Ranching? Yeah, so Need More Ranching is uh, me and my wife, Aubrey. Uh, we uh, started, I guess, here with that name just probably last year. But our our main base, our biggest lease is on Need More Creek Ranch, which is uh, located on Need More Creek. And the U.S. Cavalry back in the 1800s had a outpost on it where they could, you know, a general supply store where they could buy supplies and uh, get mail and a few things like that uh, back in the Indian Wars. But they always needed more stuff there. So they called it Need More Creek. And so that's kind of the history of, of the ranch. And uh, so we've kind of expanded on that and decided to to start Need More Ranching. And you're on leased land, correct? Yes, everything we've got is leased. I mean, there's some family land um, and then other stuff that's non-family, but everything is leased. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. So tell us about tell us about yourself, your story about you know where you're at in life and how you got there and how you got to be in agriculture. Oh, okay. So I grew up in a in a very conventional and traditional ranching operation. Um, I, I really we had somebody doing all the day to day stuff. And so I wasn't out checking the heifers or doing that type of thing. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do in high school as a career. Um, looking back now, when I was a five-year-old, you know, you had to like draw out, hey, this is what I want to be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. And apparently I wrote in there that I wanted to attend Texas Tech University and uh, be a, a rancher. And high school, Adam did not know that. So I went off to Montana State University and and was studying ranch management, but figured out that I was learning a lot about grizzlies and elk and uh, mountains and yeah, I wasn't going to be able to apply a lot of that. I, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. And there's so many things you could do up there, but I wasn't going to be able to apply it to kind of my ecosystem and those types of things. And I was a little homesick. So I decided to transfer to Texas Tech University. Little five-year-old Adam knew that's where I was going to end up. And uh, so that's where I ended up, got a degree in ranch management. And, you know, I learned, uh, I think it instilled a passion is what college did. I didn't necessarily learn any of things that I'm doing day to day now at college, but I think it kind of instilled a passion for ranch, uh, range improvements, uh, or any ranch related stuff. And so that's where the journey started out of college. I went and worked for the natural resources conservation service. Uh, I was a rangeland management specialist for them for a few years. And that just, I learned a lot and it was good to get to work with ranchers, but it was a lot of contract stuff. And I got into this field and this degree for a reason. And that was to, you know, be outside and do the ecology. And I got to do a little bit of that, but I spent more time on the computer than I liked. And so mm. um, I knew I needed to change something. So the opportunity to came up that we could move back and, and lease the ranch and start doing our own deal. And um, so that's where we're at now. We've got uh, custom grazing. We own some of our own cows. Uh, we, you know, we, did yearlings last year custom grazing we've got custom pairs right now uh, we're just kind of trying to try out all these different enterprises see what works and expand from there well that's great so you mentioned you're down on Needmore creek where where is that what uh kind of where are you at yeah. in the world yeah so we're in canadian texas that is in the northeast corner of the texas panhandle uh, mm-hmm. We're on the Canadian River, runs from New Mexico up kind of by Angel Fire, New Mexico, if you've been ever been there, all the way through Oklahoma City and then on east. Right. So 
You said you moved back. Are you originally from Canadian? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up on this ranch um, in Canadian and, and I'm living in the house that I actually grew up in. So uh, that's kind of a, was a little weird at first, but now I really don't think about it anymore. Funny story. I'm living in the house I grew up in as well. Uh, (laughs) and it's, it's strange remodeling it and going in and doing stuff and, you know, seeing dad's name written on a stud or in a breaker box, you know, quality installation by Ted A in 1977, like, oh yeah. And here's, and here's his handwritten note about where all the breakers are. So that's kind of interesting. And then you find something else that makes you go, well, who decided to do it that way? (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yep, we've been running across the same things, but you get used to it and it uh, becomes your home and you don't really second guess it after that. So so let's talk about the cows, not the custom grazers. Let's talk about your cows and uh, what kind of cows do you have and why do you like them? So uh, I, I knew you'd come up with this question, Brian, because we kind of have the same type of cows. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I, I, our primary herd is uh, Coriannis. I started out with, I bought some Red Angus and tried that and it just, didn't really work for me. And then I found some registered red Angus and thought, well, maybe this will work for me. And we tried that and it didn't really work. And so um, I kind of started to learn a little bit about the undervalued and uh, maybe the underappreciated. And mm-hmm. I think Corey and E are, are both of that. They're becoming less undervalued. I think people are starting to pick up on them and see the value in them and the genetics that they can provide. And uh, one of our big goals here on this ranch is kind of some range improvement and improving the land it's kind of been abused and the best tool for the job is probably going to be the hardiest cow we can find and so best bang for the buck that we have found that's you know able to be found somewhat locally has been the Coriani cows so we're we're not breeding back with any Coriani bulls we're breeding with with uh, angus type genetics right you know high meat to bone ratio not anything large growth or anything like that we're still kind of shooting for maternal but that's where we're at right now yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to ask what your Gen Two plan is because, uh, you know, I know that I know we're kind of about in the same place. And we don't want to give anything, give too much away too early. Right, right. Um, but it's it's cool to see. It's always exciting to see see the progeny that uh, are coming out and replacements. And we're, do we're, they we're... feel like F1 crosses though? Can we talk about that? Like, is that kind of the idea? Is this heterosis hybrid vigor? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Um, mm-hmm. I I just sold kind of my first set here a few weeks ago of, of F1 crosses and mm-hmm. they did really, really well. We were very Good. pleased um, that so far it's working. You'll, you'll have your cows that fall out and, and those that just, even with a good genetic bull trying to add meat to them, just they don't end up turning out that great. But I think you're going to get that in every breed. Absolutely. We can't blanket yeah. statement that the Coriani cow is going to fix all and they're all great because that is not true. There's a set of 30 something out here that we're open that I'm, you know, trying to rebreed and sell right now because they're falling out. But for both of you, what was the driving motivator? Was it to fit the, the environment that they, they needed to perform in? That's right? what it was for me. Um, you know, they, they, they need to be able to perform in the environment with minimum supplementation and the more mm-hmm. I started thinking about, you know, what breeds of cattle are available in North America that have genetically adapted to live on this forage, you know, and 
the more I learned about the conventional production side and, you know, a lot of the high inputs that guys were putting into their, you know, these big 12, 14, 1600 pound cows, I knew that was never going to be economical, especially when your entry price point was over $2,000 for a cow. You know, I knew I had to, I knew that it, if I was ever going to build a cow herd, I had to find something that was, that was represented a much larger value. And at the same time, also found something that was small frame, forage efficient, very fertile, and didn't need a whole lot of supplement to live on. And that's, you know, that's what we all want, right? That's the holy grail. But the only problem with Coriannes is they're a little bit too small and they grow just a little bit too slow. For sure. For sure. And, you know, I, I'm running one herd during breeding season. So I've still got red Angus and some black Angus as well. And and I run everything together as one herd during the summer, during the breeding season. But then in uh, the winter, I'm changing that because these higher input cows aren't holding up like at all. Uh, I lose in body condition. I, I can't feed them more if they're all in one group. And so that's uh i'm pushing the coriani cows a whole lot harder than i am the higher input like angus type cows and feeding them less and they're doing just as well so it's really neat to see that i'm i'm pushing the batch that uh i'm pushing mine pretty hard and i've got three different three different groups i've got the group i bought out of texas and a group i bought from a future guest hopefully and uh, another group i bought out of the woodward sale barn and I can sure tell. I can sure tell the ones that that are going to fit the program and the ones that are succeeding and the ones that are not. There's there's already a lot of fallout of the program this year, but yeah. you know you just have to accept that. I and mean, when you buy a cow for three hundred bucks, yeah, it's. I, I mean, it's three hundred dollar cow. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. It's and you know what? There's such a huge barrier to entry for people that are trying to get into this deal and custom grazing is one of the easiest ways to get into that. But I was trying to bridge that uh, gap and try to, what can I own that is not going to be a huge barrier to entry that allows me to learn. I think there's a lot better. uh, I guess how I would say it is anybody that I would advise that wants to get into the cow calf business that is in an environment similar to ours, Brian, I would recommend go out and buy some Coriani cows. I think you've got a lot more grace. There's a lot more wiggle room for some mess ups and they're going to be okay. They're just hardier. They hold up better. There's less initial investment in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been a really good tool for us, even though I grew up ranching and on a, you know, on a ranch, when you're the one making all the day to day decisions, uh, it, changes things a lot and so having an animal that can hold up to that has been definitely a, a valuable uh, i don't know if we should really be telling everybody this because then the price is going to go up and when we want to buy replacements we're going to have to pay more for them but uh, i guess it is what it is yeah for sure for sure there, you're right on that though i uh, saw last week uh, they had a special sale 900 dollars for pairs so oh, wow uh, 300 cow put a put a bull on them, get them bred, get a calf out of it and turn it around and sell it for 900 bucks. That'd be pretty hard to beat. That's, that's very hard to beat. I mean, that's good money and you can turn that pretty often. So that's a marketing trick. So let's, let's jump down a marketing rabbit trail. Um, you said you custom graze and you have some of your own cattle. Do you just sell, sell at the barn or do you have a different pathway to market? 
Facebook has been my biggest market. I had a guy driving from Kansas City last weekend to buy some of the, I had some ropers to so some cows that I'd bought that were bred to a Corianny bull. And uh, so Facebook has been honestly my primary. Uh, there's several groups, Corianny cattle, you know, Corianny beef cross, a bunch of different groups. And uh, I just kind of post a video there and it's great. People drive to the ranch. I don't have to haul anything. I don't have any tires blow out on the way to the sale barn. I don't have to have a big diesel pickup to pull them. I don't have to have a big expensive trailer trailer to pull them. And uh, there's demand for it. I mean, I had I've had people drive from eastern Oklahoma, Kansas City, New Mexico, you name it. People are in demand, you know, see the demand for it, and, and there's not a lot of supply. So it's been fairly easy to market them. Well, that's good. That's good. I, I didn't put a whole lot of thought into marketing mine because I, I just didn't. <laughs> I, I'm sure I could have taken advantage of some other deals, but uh, I had to make a decision at the time. So you mentioned you've been selling a lot through Facebook. So before we get too much deeper down any rabbit trails, where can people find you on social media? Yeah. So, um, need more underscore ranching is our Instagram handle. My Facebook, I don't have one friend. I literally just created an account just so that I can peruse around these groups and stuff. You sound so like you my really, husband. Mm-hmm. You, you really can't find me on Facebook. Um, I, quite frankly, I don't even know what my name is or I don't, know the last time I went to my page or how to get to my page. I simply use it as a marketing tool. Um, other than that, I'm not big on social media. I, I probably should have a little bigger presence. I've reserved a domain on Google, but I have yet to create a website. And uh, that is on the to-do list at some point. So unfortunately, it's a little bit hard to find me. And some days I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I definitely understand that. I me like too. being hard to find. Mm-hmm. For sure. So you talked about improving the land. So what are some of the metrics you're using to measure that? We've got some transects set up. I think photos are the best. Um, it's easy to look at photos. The, the hardest thing, and I, I think it's hard for a lot of ranchers, the majority of ranchers, is taking the time to go out every year and taking photo transects. You know, we can say we do it and we get her all set up. But then you look back on it, it's like, man, I wish I had more photos. And so I would like to do more of that. But we've got a few transects set up where we've, we count what plants are at what, um, you know, marks on the, the, I think about 100 meter tape is what we do. We'll take a photo and the direction that we're pointing whenever we take those photos and implementing that. I've got an app that I've been using for that. And it, it has a timestamp with a GPS latitude and longitude on the, photo so that way you can go back i have found where if you go out and stick posts what was that what was the name of that app um the name of the app hold on let me pull it up on my phone um one thing that you do have to worry about is if you go stick a post out and especially if you're you know determining what plants are present cows are going to go next to that post and rub on it and stomp on it and sleep around it and congregate on it and so they're changing and not what eat it is you're measuring. and not eat what's where the post is. Right. Right. And so that's a real issue that um is, You'll go back and see all the hair. Yeah, yeah. So right. I had to I had to learn from trial and error on that one. Um but the app I use is called GrassSnap. It's in mm-hmm. University of Nebraska. It's yeah. pretty outdated. I, I wish it was a little I don't know, they would refresh it and maybe update it with some stuff, but it is free. And mm-hmm. um it's, it's worked for us so far. 
Good deal. So let's talk about how you graze. How do you graze down there on Needmore Creek? Um, we've, I would say we're in exploratory phase. We do different, different things in different areas and, and we're experimenting. One thing that I'm learning through right now, and I think you have too, we've gotten a fair amount of moisture. It's, uh, you know, mid to late March right now. And we've gotten a fair amount of moisture lately. And I'm trying to learn, okay, is it best to have them tighter and maybe pug up the ground a little bit, but it's a smaller sacrifice area or I give them a little bit bigger area and uh, maybe they don't affect it as bad, but they're going to affect larger acreage, but we're doing electric fencing. There was no electric fencing out here when we got started. We, we put in some main permanent electric fence lines and then we're doing, you know, poly wire off of that. We're doing some strip grazing. We're doing some ultra high density grazing. Uh, We're doing just some lighter, more conventional grazing. We're, in the process of putting in water pipelines. And so I have several pastures that are, Oh, I've got them down and now to four or 500 acres. I think uh, that mm-hmm. I just don't have enough water in right now. And so to I make them smaller. Do, right. Yeah. I can't do what I want to do yet, but we're in the works because it pays. I mean, it pays really well to move your cattle as much as possible and have them, I think as high a density as possible. I, that's something I'm I'm still learning through and where to do it. Um, you know, we'll experiment with, we'll go over to a weedy patch and stomp it all to the ground. And then we'll go to super mature grasses and stomp it to the ground and, and see, in, you know, how, how nature responds. Did you say how long you've been doing this? Yeah, we've been doing this for... Oh, I guess the intensity has increased. Uh, I mean, right. Every, every year you learn something uh, new. Yeah. 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 Um, high density grazing a year and a half now. Um, we, we've got now the electric fence lifters that pins agro makes. We imported those from Argentina and have been experimenting with those and Uh, I know, Brian, you've used the bat latches, and I Mm -hmm. like this because it gives us the option to add a gate anywhere. We don't have to have it at the end, and so wherever I've got polywire running through a big, thick, mature grass stand that the cows don't want to eat, I'll stick the lifter there and have them stomp it to the ground whenever they go through to the next pasture, and so. I started chirping at Penn's Agro on on, uh, Instagram saying, hey, you know, those those fence lifters look pretty neat. Why don't you send me a couple so you can compare them to a bat latch, so. They haven't Ooh. responded yet. Maybe uh, we're calling them out again here. <laughs> I, I guess we are calling them out again. So Penzagro gauntlet is thrown. Are those down? Are those the ones? Can you drive over those two, or you just drive under them? No. Can you do any of that? No. You could. You drive, guys know what I'm talking about. You could drive under it, Pablo. He's he's a really good guy. Um, I yeah. really like Pablo. So I don't know if you've seen American Grazing Land Coalition is now selling these. And so mm. you don't have to actually get them from Argentina. Man, we had Imported. a nightmare with customs trying to import stuff. And that was a disaster. And so they are going to be a lot easier easier uh, to access. And uh, so far, I would recommend it. I, I seem to have got some custom cows right now that seem to be a little bit slow to learn. And so I've had to set up two of those gates next to each other to give them a larger area. And they I seem see. to want to walk under yeah. it then. But uh, it seems like they don't want to walk under the gate if it's just one unless I drive under it, which kind of defeats the purpose of yeah. I've got to go out there and drive under it for them to like follow Like moving me. them. Yeah. yeah, you might as well not have it if that's the case. So we'll see how quick they pick up on that. I've only had them for not quite a month. So 
there, you know, there's a training period. There's always a training so, period with new cattle, especially when you're doing doing something like a fence lifter or a bat latch. Um, some of them, some are smart and they figure it out in two or three days. Some are just kind of dumb and it takes a month. Yeah. What do they and say? I, it's 21 times to make a habit or to learn a new habit or whatever. Right. What is that I don't saying? Know if, yeah. You think cows are the same way? Uh, I think they're smarter than that. Okay. I don't think it yeah, did, I, I thought you were going to say. I don't think they're the other way. I, yeah, I, I don't think, think they program a lot quicker. Times. It's yeah, like the Pavlov do. theory, right? Like you know, it, you can train a dog to to a sound, and every time you have that sound, you feed them, and they salivate when they hear that sound because they mm-hmm. they yeah. Right. Yeah. They they are a lot smarter than people like to. You know, these cows I'm only going to have for ninety days on my place, and they oh, wow. never they never seen yeah. Polywi before when I got them, and. So that's been, you know, I'm learning through taking in cattle for three or four months at a time, and that's it, having to train them up. And I've got to get them trained as quick as I can so I can get them implemented in my system and not have them abuse these areas where I've got a semi-load out or, you know, traps and things like that. Yeah, and that's that's definitely understandable. You know, I, every time I get custom cattle in, and I don't – I don't like to do things on a 90 day deal. I like to, you know, if it's not a hundred, 120 days, I don't like to mess with it because it does take 30 to 40 days to get mm-hmm. everything settled in. And, Oh, you know, if you're on daily moves and you're out there every day and you're willing to, you know, put them behind the wire, rebuild the fence and leave for a couple hours, three times a day, you can, sometimes you can get them in, you know, three, four days. Sometimes you get a bunch that just, you know, enough of them are familiar with it. The rest don't mess with it. And then sometimes you get a bunch of knuckleheads that all they do for a month on daily moves is just tear your crap up. And that's all you do is, you know, you're just a full-time electric fence repair technician. Yeah. I've got a question for you, Brian. If somebody said they'd send you 2000 head for three months and then you can go to Costa Rica for the other nine months, would you not entertain that? (sighs) You know, I've done it. (laughs) I've, I've done it. Okay. Yeah. I've done it. Uh, and I might do it again in the future. But, uh, you know, it, it goes back to one of those things about having enterprises that are contextually appropriate to your resource base. And I just don't think that running mass numbers of yearlings uh, is really what my land needs to succeed. I, I have a feeling that my land is much more suited towards more of a year-round cow-calf production scheme and then peeling the peeling the ones off you want to finish and send them somewhere else on a planted forage, you know, on an annual planted forage or under a pivot that's going to give them a lot more punch and they're going to have, you know, more of a consistent growth rate than they are on native range. Who said they needed to be yearlings? I, I know it is harder to find stuff, but these pairs that I got in are literally here for 90 days and then they're gone. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't have any problem with doing cow-calf or, you know, replacement heifers, you know, doing a big... It's it's numbers. It's all numbers. It's it's pounds of forage consumed, Adam. It doesn't matter if it's a cow, calf, right. heifer steer, or you're running somebody's 2,000-pound prize bulls. It's just, it's hooves on the ground, pounds of forage consumed. The yep. end. Yeah. So, tell me about some of your education in ranching. Where did you go to learn uh, learn what you know about ranching, and what are you excited to keep learning about? Well, 
this plug has been put in about 300 times in this podcast already and we're only oh no he's ready for this i think i'm sorry it's it's a three-letter word rfp um ranching for profit has been a a very big role uh in our education uh it's been phenomenal it's the school that shall not be named the school yeah, that shall not be named. The school yeah. that shall not be named. It, it, enough people have talked about it. It's great. If you haven't been, you need to go. I, I've been to some other stuff, actually. Well, Brian, you were at one school what last year with me, uh, Wally Olson's marketing school over in Oklahoma. And that was really good. It was eye-opening. It's, it's a work in progress. I don't think it's something you're going to learn overnight. It's For those that uh, aren't familiar with that, if you've heard of Bud Williams, he not only did stockmanship, but he also did sell by marketing. And so mm-hmm. Wally Olson does that. And it really teaches you, you know, before I knew what sell by marketing was, I had already bought Coriani cows, but that's what it is. I was buying the undervalued animal, adding value to it. And then whenever it becomes overvalued, you sell it. And I, I didn't know that's what I was doing, but it's what I was doing. And there's lots of different opportunities there. I think the marketing is one thing that ranchers really need to sharpen their uh, tools on because of the marketing we're not very good at as an industry. Are you doing anything to work on your marketing stream? Do you have any plans to do direct to uh, direct to consumer sales, do any beef business sales, or are you just strictly going to stay in the cattle business and not transition to the beef side? I, if I was to transition, I would not take on my own brand. I would find somebody that's, you know, looking for some grass finished or grass fed animal and, and wanting to take it from there. I don't, I've got another kind of side gig. I do rain, I sell rainfall insurance. And so uh, with that and the ranching, I just don't have the time that I would like to allocate right. towards something like that. And I, I don't see that I could justify bringing someone on, you know, just solely to work for me. So I would need to find some of a form of a partnership if we were to want to do that at any scale. And I think that's where a lot of us are is we're, we're just tapped out labor wise and brain power wise, and we just mm-hmm. don't have anything left, but you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, directions we could all take our business to be beneficial, not just for us, us, our families and our communities, but the labor pool is not there. The, and it's not just the 100%. skilled labor. And it's yeah. not just the lack of skilled labor. I mean, yeah. it's a lack of available labor, people that will just show up and work for a reasonable amount of money for the job you're giving. It's going to become more of an issue, too. The past few weeks, I've called several. I just bought a new UTV and was looking for a few accessories and things for it. And I was calling these companies, you know, saying, hey, what do you have in stock? And one, they didn't have stuff in stock and they'd have it two month lead time, but two, they were literally offering me a job saying, Hey, we need more people to work for us. Cause they yeah. can't find anybody to work right now. I get it. I and mean, COVID I get it quite is, a bit too. Yeah. They're like, you're doing this. You need to do this with us too. I'm like, it's I don't been have a serious time. issue. So yeah, this, this, uh, Hey, there are no jobs out there and our unemployment's getting bad. That is by choice because absolutely uh, there's plenty of places to work right now. It's just, if somebody's willing to go do it. Several of my friends have told me, Oh, specifically a friend that owns an auto repair shop. Mm-hmm. And he's been working on my feed trucks for the last year. And it's 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 kind of a pain to get in there and get something worked on because he's always like, well, call me back next week. I might have a slot for you in two weeks. Mm-hmm. 
like, dude, can't you get any help? It's like, nope, nobody wants to come to work. Everybody would rather sit at home and collect their COVID checks. Well, they're making, they were making $600 more than we were that we were working, right? So was it a week that they were getting paid more? $600 a week? Yeah, to I do so. no, nothing. So, I mean, it's hard to argue with that because, you know, I couldn't do that mentally. I would die if I didn't have a job. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, we incentivize people to stay home hmm. and not work. Yeah. Um, not necessarily stay home, but not work. Right. So, Adam, you mentioned that you did some ultra-high-density grazing. What does that look like in your context? Um, right now, like those custom cows, I've got on a couple of moves a day. I wouldn't quite say that's high density. I have done high density with them where they may only be in a pasture for two to three hours at a time. I'm in the experimentation phase. I don't want to go, you know, I've got a, about not quite 7,000 acres here as kind of a base to work with. And I don't want to go stomp all 7,000 acres into the ground right now and not know how it's going to respond. I'm still learning with this and I don't know that I'll ever have it figured out, but I want to see how things respond and what works for me. I think we need to not just see one man's methods and say, well, that's the Bible and I've got to stick with it and I can't modify it and tweak it to work for my myself. So there may be one week where I just don't have time to get out and move the fence every day. And so they may be in a pasture for several days. And then there may be another week where I can get out there three times a day. And so they're on three times a day moves. And so I'm playing with it all and I just make notes. And then the next year I can go back and say, well, here's what it looked like and here's how it looks now. And this is because of this management. Um, and that's kind of a lot of what it's about is being being willing to go out and make an experiment on a small piece and then be able to observe the results of it over a long period of time and say, am I moving the needle in the right direction? Is right. this getting Measuring better? Impact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is this getting better or is it going backwards? And I think it's Got important it. that, you know, we all need to get in that mindset of spending more time out on the land and looking down, not out. And seeing what's really there going on with the soil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agree hundred percent. So, Adam, how did you come around to regenerative agriculture and soil health principles? I think my pursuit of perfection. Mm. I'm a naturally a perfectionist, and I've kind of got an engineering and technical mindset. And, uh, conventional wasn't good enough for me. It one financially, it wasn't penciling. So something needed to change Two, internet's a phenomenal resource where we can, I mean, you can YouTube and Facebook. And I mean, there's so many different areas where we can find new knowledge. And so I think in my pursuit of, of perfection, and I know I won't ever get there, I've, found that there's always a better way. And I think regenerative agriculture is one of the best avenues to, to get there. Um, and, you know, it's the new buzzword. Sustainable was a buzzword for a while. And now it's regenerative and 15, 20 years from now, regenerative will be, oh, nobody wants to do it's regenerative. That's, that's, right? that's historic. Yeah. That's nobody wants to do that. But um, so I, I don't know, it's definitely overused and I don't like that it is, but it is, at least uh, 
like the New York Times folks when they came down, you know, they mm-hmm. had heard the word regenerative. And if we can start kind of planting that into somebody that lives in Brooklyn, New York, and if they can put regenerative and life and something that is changing from bad to good right. with agriculture, then I think mm-hmm. that's a win. And so um, I'm okay with it being used for that. But when, when you're in this circle, you have to see it and hear it every day because everybody's using the new buzzword. Well, I actually want to share a story from this weekend. I had told some of my friends to watch Kiss the Ground, that movie Hmm. that kind of educates consumers on regenerative ag and uh, changing your ecosystem so that you can combat climate change, right? So I had some friends I had over for dinner and they go, CK, I've got a bone to pick with you. Like, and I was like, what? And they're like, we watched this movie and this is like anti beef industry. And I said, no, it's not, but it's also, they have to be controversy. There has to be controversial to get people to, to, to pay attention to it. Right. Like we have to mm-hmm. say, this is what we're doing to our water system with glyphosate. This is what, you know, from the, our historical context, this is what the landscape looks like and why, um, so for me, it was like an aha moment that not all my friends have the same mindset that I do that I thought did. Uh, yeah. Yeah, folks, listeners, if you haven't seen that Kiss the Ground movie, where did you go watch it? I think it's I think it's I saw on it on Netflix. Am- on Netflix. I saw it on Netflix. Yeah. Um, it's been out since, I guess, November, but I just watched it last weekend. I knew that there was Passion Rap in there. So and I knew what the context of it was, but I, I just hadn't watched it it's fantastic yeah yeah, it was really good yeah it was really good i i do want to say you know my husband did have a good point is like i don't want to bash a hundred years of of ranchers work that they put in because they are good land stewards so like we need to respect them in that sense but we have to realize um there's a new way to do things or even uh just a different way to do things right there's always a different and better way nobody's got it figured out So there you go, Joel. (laughs) (laughs) So what are, what are some of the best resources you've found and who are some of your mentors in the ranching industry? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, I think I'm finding more and more that these Facebook groups have been phenomenal. I think the first really big group that I got was in a WhatsApp group. I got added to a Johan Zietzman WhatsApp group, which I think you were or are a part of Brian. I'm in there. I just lurk. Yeah. And so I, you know, I'd have something come up where, you know, I'd have a cow. She'd be showing some symptom and I just, I didn't really know what to do and had never really done anything i'd take a video and post on there and say hey what's wrong with her what what's up how do i help her and and so i got lots of really good input and from there i've met people in person i've called you know i call people uh from all over been to schools with people now where they were in those groups originally and and that's Mm -hmm. expanded to uh, i'm in a group with uh jaime elizondo And so that's been really good. That's opened the doors to Facebook groups. And then you get on Instagram and I, you know, I talking to you, Brian, I know you're on TikTok, and that's kind of uh, been a pretty big ranching um, 
I, I've, I've never done TikTok. I don't have the app or really know how it works, but that's wild to me that you can learn things and ask questions and see other people's operations and challenge each other. And social media has been one of the biggest gifts to agriculture that I think a lot of us can take for granted. Absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, just like this podcast, it's giving us a voice. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we're kind of a minority. I mean, 2% of us grow the food for the rest. I mean, you want to talk about minorities, we're, we're kind of in there. And for a long time, we haven't had a voice and we haven't really had a seat at, a ta- at the table and a way to tell our story. And I think one of the blessings of COVID mm-hmm. is it's given so many of us a chance to connect with our consumers and start telling our story of food. And consumers, when they're seeing these empty shelves, they're starting to ask questions like, hey, why am I seeing Joe Rancher out in Oklahoma complaining that he's not getting paid a fair price for his cows? But why is there empty shelves at the grocery store? And when you can find meat, it's twice as expensive as it was last year. What's going on here? And these people are starting to ask these questions. And I think that that is a great thing. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I, My biggest worry is that people will forget and it's all going to blow oh, I know. over. And yeah. I, COVID has not been fun. It has been a disaster for a lot of people. I think it will be, has the potential to um, make us a much more efficient economy, society, industry, all of those things. If, we learn from the event. If we forget about it next year and you don't even, it's not on our radar and we don't learn from the mistakes and all those things, then there may not be any good come from it. So uh, I really hope that the common consumer remembers and, and realizes where their meat comes from, where their food comes from and, um, and those types of things. As I like to say, Shake the hand that feeds you. Mm-hmm. We're, yeah. we're, I got to put that on a t-shirt. We got to put mm-hmm. that on t-shirt, CK. Before somebody else does. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, Adam, what's, what's something that everybody can do? Anybody listening that's not already involved in, in the production of protein? What's one thing that anybody out there, say, in a, in a filing cabinet in Los Angeles or New York, what can they do to help us start moving the needle? I, I think just supporting local agriculture and not going to Walmart. And I know this has been discussed a little bit on this podcast previously, but support local agriculture. Call the local rancher or your friend or drive around. I mean, agriculture is everywhere in every, every country. Uh, I guarantee you if, if somebody was looking for a better place to buy something and they drove up to my ranch and said, Hey, I'd like to deal with you. Can I buy a beef straight off your ranch? I'd say, heck yeah, let's do it. We'll both save money. We'll cut out the middleman. We're not going to waste trucking, you know, all the emissions and everything else. And I mean, it would just be so much more efficient. And so I would say buy local. That doesn't necessarily mean go to your, your local grocery store and buy from, you know, beef that came from Australia or, you know, God knows where, 
Um, uh, again, shake the hand that beat you. Uh, you I, I know you it's a common hand. theme, and I know he keeps saying it probably almost every episode, but it's important. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and I'm finding more and more as I'm getting into this presence of region ag, there's a lot of folks that are not in the industry that are just eating up region ag. I mean, they're somebody oh, sent yeah. me a, a library of books that had several hundred books on there that are all about regenerative agriculture that I had never even heard of. And this, you know, this guy didn't own a cow or a sheep or a goat or a chicken or anything, but he's, is eating it up. And so it's really, really cool. I think we need more of those people in this industry uh, to, jump in to do internships to learn. Yeah, and I think, and- yeah, they also have insights that we don't either as far as what their experience or their the lens that they see the world. So I 100% agree with that comment. Some of those people can add more value to my operation by seeing things from their perspective and their lens than Brian Alexander can because Brian Alexander does a lot of the same things that I do and we can get clouded vision. And nothing against you, Brian, but it's amazing how blinded we can be when you grow up doing it or you just do the same old, same old every single day. Absolutely. So what can we do to start getting the next generation involved in their food system and excited about food production? So one thing, um, that New York times article, uh, I went to Texas tech and, I ended up talking to a few professors after that, and they're wanting to send some classes here. And I know those are those are going to be kids that are studying ranch management and things like that that may not necessarily even end up. Honestly, majority of people I graduated with are not in agriculture. Right. Majority of people I graduated with have a degree in ranch management or not even in the agricultural industry. And so, I think that's going to be a good opportunity. We're going to start having some classes coming out as well as potentially internship opportunities Mm -hmm. and develop and train people to be able to go out and actually do something with their degree after they graduate. Yeah. And so it's super, super exciting to see that Um, there's two different colleges that are are looking at doing that. And um, I think there's going to be a lot of good opportunity there because just because you have a degree in ranch management doesn't mean you can go manage a ranch or move electric fence or, <laughs> you know, palpate a cow. Yes, yes, yes. And, and yes. the financial side of things, too. I'm very big into the financials. I'd say that's one of my bigger strong suits. Mm-hmm. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of these schools, again, the school we will not speak of is very good at the financials, but... Outside of that, I've just not seen it elsewhere. And if you don't have right. that, you don't have anything. You can't Mm-mm. keep doing this if you can't make it work, unless you've got some job that's going to pay you, you know, for the rest of your life, then you don't have to do anything but drive to the mailbox and pull the check out. That'd be a rough, rough life, wouldn't it? It would. It would. Um, it, going back earlier, you said kind of maybe some some people maybe that had been influential. I got to meet Burke Tykert a few years ago and have, have dinner with him. And I I guess because he knows the financials, that was really neat. One really strong suit that I wish I could, could have shadowed him for a while would be the people side of things. He, you know, he had to manage so many different people. I think there's within ranching, there's probably no better people manager than, than a gentleman like him. And so 
following people like him and uh you know there's a there's a whole list of folks that are pretty good at their own little sectors and uh specific uh categories within ranching mm-hmm. that I've started to follow and so that's been really neat you can find lots of youtube videos on guys like him and you know greg judy and um jim garish and i mean the the literally there's there's a bunch of people out there that have been doing this a lot longer than me that i can gain experience from by watching a youtube video right on well before we switch gears and start talking about drones because i know you want to talk about drones a little bit even if you don't i do i was gonna Uh, say brian (laughs) So we left, have we left anything on the table you want to, uh, you want to talk about before we move on to drones? I don't think so. There's so many rabbit trails we could go down. Um, and I think that's one reason why I love ranching because there's, you get to wake up and do something different every day. I, I don't think there's, we, we could go on for forever. I think I'm ready to, to start talking about drones because that's been an extremely valuable tool to me. And I don't think there's enough people using them. Okay, well, let's start talking about it. Let's. Uh, so, how long have you been using a drone, and and what kind of drones do you use? So, I guess my dad started out before kind of change in management and uh, in lessees. My dad started out with a DJI Phantom, and he had some of those, and they were nice. They're big, they're bulky, they have had pretty good quality cameras. This was before DJI had kind of lined out their software, and he had a few go haywire on them and just wreck themselves. Uh, the first one wrecked with no insurance and that got expensive. So then he got insurance on the next one and it wrecked, but they got him a new one. And um, so it started with there. And honestly, strictly all we've ever had is DJI brand. Uh, they seem to be the most universal. They kind of seem to be the Apple of, of drones Okay, and, and they've worked out for us, but I guess we've been using them for several years now and Honestly, when I go out of the house, you know, you, you make sure you got your, your keys or your phone or your <laughs> wallet or your pocket knife. And a drone is about the second thing I grab on that list uh, because it'll save me a lot of miles on wear and tear on a vehicle and save me a lot of time, too. We'll talk about it. How does it save you time and wear and tear on your vehicles? Uh, it depends on the time of year and what the uh, objective is. So... One advantage to doing this higher density grazing is my cows, I can see them all from one spot in the pasture and that is very convenient. But having to shuffle through some of these bigger pastures and I've got some other lease ground on stuff that is a little bit further away, I've got cows in larger pastures. And if I'm moving, uh, I can pick up and see if I'm missing something. I, I'll take my drone with me when I go out and feed and, and try to have a designated plan. So I don't have a bunch of cows chasing me halfway across the pasture, trying to, you know, run off a ton of pounds uh, chasing the feed truck. I can take up my drone, see where cows are at, kind of get an action plan, go out, feed them, not worry about really bothering them too much, them chasing, running off from their calves, Mm -hmm. um, those types of things. And I think I, I need to work a little bit on stockmanship and how to approach them and things like that to keep them from that. But uh, you know, literally the options are endless. If you're looking, when we have a big flood, I'll fly fences and water gaps. I've got electric fence running across, you know, a river and things like that. And so I can, I can check those things. 
Um, I've got a river that runs through the property and it's about an hour and 15 minute drive to go from one side to the other. Cause I have to drive all the way to the town of Canadian and way back around. And if I could take up my drone and fly to the other side and check things and make sure they're all there or not there, or, or the fence isn't down or the water's okay. Um, I, I can check water with it when it's really cold out and there's ice all over, you know, I can make sure that if the windmills, you know, are pumping and water's free or if it needs to go be broken. Um, if I'm missing something, it's the fastest way. Uh, I've had a, a rogue bull jump in the fence and trying to breed the neighbor's heifers. And oh, wow. Yeah. I see that he's, if he's gone, I can take up the drone real quick and fly over there. Well, sure enough, there he is and, and not have to go drive over and see, and then come back and get a trailer or whatever else that I need to do. And then when I'm moving cattle, like long distances, I can have the feed truck up front and drive or whatever it is. And then just have the drone at the back picking up any stragglers. I don't have to have a second employee or somebody behind pushing something that doesn't want to come along. Cows can get a little bit used to it and not worry about it as much. Yearlings, you can push really well. I mean, I could move a whole herd of yearlings once they're trained to the drone without even being out there uh, to whatever pasture I wanted to. And so that's really neat, especially when you're taking in custom cattle and they don't even have, they're not even around long enough to, to get tame to it. Um, Cause I have had some cows get tamed to it. And then you try to start, you know, pop them in the nose with the prop to try to get them to move. And then it just really upsets them. And then they just take off running and, and that doesn't work. So I would not advise that. Um <laughs> In pins, I'll use them in pins whenever I've, I've got a gate open and I'm running stuff through, but then I need I need to be behind a, a set of cattle, but I also need somebody at that gate. I don't have to have oh, somebody at that gate. Like I can an inner buy. Yeah, I, I set the drone in the gate, and then when I need the gate to be open, I just fly up and raise the drone up, and cattle go in, and I can drop it back down. And so um, the options are endless. Uh, the only thing that I've seen is the biggest constraint is if you've got a cow in like an alley in a set of pins and you're trying to get her to go the other way and you try to hit her in the nose with the prop, she, she's going to go the opposite way you want her to go. That's about the only time I've seen that it hasn't worked. Interesting. Interesting. So what kind of drones do you fly? You mentioned that you, uh, you fly DJIs and you started with a Phantom. What are you flying now? Yeah. So then I went to a DJI mini and I found the versatility of it uh, a lot better because I was, you know, I would throw it on my motorcycle. That's kind of my, my, uh, main method of, especially in the summer when it's warmer of transport, it's efficient. Don't burn a lot of gas. And, uh, you know, I could carry a few things with it. So I'd throw it over my shoulder and travel around that way. The only thing I didn't like about it is it was Wi-Fi based and solely Wi-Fi based the connection between the remote and the drone. And so if I had to go very far or, a hill between me and the cows or something like that, it would lose connectivity. And so that one worked for me. I bought it one month. Uh, I sold it about six months later for like $50 less than I paid for it. Oh, that's and I not put bad like, then. I put yeah. like 300 hours on the thing. You know, the batteries didn't last near as long as they did when I started them. And I upgraded to a uh, DJI Mavic Air 2. And uh, that is my current one. And, and, it worked out that way. I don't know if it all will continue, but the game plan is probably to kind of to continue to upgrade. They've got a pretty steep depreciation curve if you've got them for like five years or longer. But if you can upgrade every year, 
the depreciation really isn't too bad. Sell it on eBay and buy a new one for not a whole lot more. And you get, you know, fresher batteries and better technology. And, and now the, the air too, I've got a lease that's four miles from me. I'll fly from my house to the lease, check, make sure water's working for the cows and fly back. And it would take me an hour and 20 minutes to drive. And it takes me, you know, 16 minutes to fly it. And you can do um, it from your front porch from in your pajamas porch. while you're drinking coffee. I can do it from my office window. So I don't oh, have wow. to be outside. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's pretty great. What and a life so, of luxury. Yeah. Um, so I've seen the versatility of these newer drones with longer battery life, faster speeds. And that's a big thing too, that Mavic Mini, you know, we get a lot of wind. And if it was 30 mile an hour winds, I would I would be okay with dropping the drone out if I was on the upwind side of the pasture and I was going to drive to the back end. But if I was on the downwind side, there was no way I was going to take it up, fight against the wind, and then have enough battery to get myself back. And so that's kind of a tactic I've, tactic I've taken too. If I need to take the drone up, scout out, see where things are at, I'll go on the upwind side and then drive through and pick it up on that downwind side and it'll save me a lot of battery life. That's a good tip. See, I've, I, have a, um, I have a Mavic Air. I don't have the Air 2. I have the original Air and that's really nice, but it has a controller and so I can, I can fly it either off my phone or off the controller. And that thing's pocket size. Hmm. Like it's the same footprint as your phone, but it's, you know, a couple inches thick. So you can dang near fit that thing in a pocket. Uh, but my favorite drone to use is going to be my Mavic 2 zoom. Because that zoom lens, I can really, I can really punch in close and do a close investigation and keep that noise envelope of the drone way outside of any mm. animal's flight zone. Um, yeah. and, and How I, much I, are those? Are they like 500, 500 bucks? Keep going. More? Oh, More. Keep going. I mean, they're thousand dollars Yeah, they're, they're high. But it's a work tool. I'm like, yeah. Adam, just, you know. Oh, no. It, I, just, I just was wondering. Yeah. That's why I yeah. asked. Yeah, so um, the Mini that I bought, I think, was 500 And then I sold it for like 450 the Air 2 I bought was 1100 I always get the Fly More package. It comes with three batteries rather than just one and a, usually a carrying case and a few other accessories. It's far worth it because those batteries are about $100 a pop anyways, and it's usually only about 100 bucks more to get the Fly More. Um, so that is definitely worth it. I do like the Air 2 also does have Zoom. It's not – doesn't have the Zoom that you have, Brian. It's a digital uh, what's Zoom. zoom. Is this faster? No, yeah, it's so, a Zoom lens on the camera. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Zoom, zoom. No, it goes faster. Uh, okay, CK. Yeah. So I thought totally, I thought Brian was coming to record this episode with you too for context. Like I was like, oh, that's cool. You're going to go record a drone podcast episode. He's like, no, CK, we're going to talk about drones. flying drones. We're going to do a podcast that's about, true. you know, half about drones. So yeah, yeah went I, over I my head. The, Sorry. The, the zoom option has been great for reading your tags. Uh, if I know I've got a problem or if I've got a cow that's behind, I can zoom in. I can see nice. that, hey, it's ear tag 426. And then if I need to relay that to someone else, I can say, hey, ear tag 426 needs this or is here or whatever. And, and there's a lot of uh, communication barriers that you can break down there. Um, so, Well, I don't um, know where she's at. I, I didn't find her. Uh, all right. Well, hang on. Just follow the drone and she will. I will, I will lead you right to where so, you need to be. 
Wow. One thing I really like too is tracks. It'll track where you've been and then you can drop a point and I'll take a screenshot of that and then I can share it with someone. So if I've got a specific location that I need to, to pinpoint, I can drop a point and they can see where I was at. I can text it to somebody and they can say, oh, okay, well, that's where he's at or that's where it's at or whatever. And, and then they know. Um, so that's been nice. I would like to use more monitoring with it, going up, taking satellite basically satellite photos of my ranch on a pasture level basis uh, for inventory each year. Yeah. I, I um, think that's a much, much more expensive sensor than what we've had. Yeah. Well, and I'm not talking about NDVI because um, there is NDVI options. Uh, I'm talking about just basic, uh, basic photos. You can see even from that, you know, on primarily weeds or primarily grass or, what everything looks like uh, mm-hmm. from a pasture-wide scale. And so I, I've not done enough of that. I've, I've dabbled in it a little bit, but I think there's a lot of options. And then you can get into thermal camera options and being able to find for you know, nighttime through brush. Yeah. Well, not necessarily in nighttime, probably just as much in the daytime. Oh, okay. You go yeah, find yeah, that yeah. calf that's hiding behind the sagebrush in the shadow that you drove past three feet away and didn't see. True. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think do, there's. Do some they have lights there. on it too? Did the these don't uh, drones? Sorry. Yeah, they have mine's lights? got an mine's got an LED on the bottom that you can shine, and you know, really, if you're about ten foot or lower, it's beneficial. Other than that, it's it kind of it's pointless. Okay. Um, or if, if you, you just if you're flying at dusk and you need to figure out where the heck it's at you can turn that thing on and from you know half a mile away you can see where it's to at guide it yeah. yeah that's what the go home buttons for right. there are some some enterprise level drones from dji which mm-hmm. i mean you know we're, we're talking about stuff that's in a thousand fifteen hundred dollar range in their consumer range which is you know kind of reasonable budget that a working cow man can afford some of their enterprise stuff is just absolutely phenomenal. I was looking at uh, one called the Matrice 300, which just mm. came out. And I've got a new camera hanging on it that's got four sensors. And it has up to a 40 times optical zoom lens on it. Whoa. Yeah. And then, it can, then it's got some digital zoom it can do past that. But it also integrates a thermal sensor behind that zoom lens. Oh, wow. So that's yeah. So that calf that's hiding behind the sagebrush in the shadow a mile away, (laughs) you can see it with that thing, but that's also like a $33,000 piece of hardware. So if there's anybody out there listening that has way too much money and wants to donate me a Matrice 3000 with, I think the camera's called an HT 20, um, I'd be happy to to use that, give give all kinds of reviews on it, and I'll even use it for burning season, which is coming up, because uh, having a thermal camera and a high endurance drone with a awesome zoom lens would do absolute wonders for our burn association. But that is a different podcast. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I um, I think you can help folks out too. Uh, I, one of my clients, I was on his place and he's like a 70 something year old rancher. And he had, uh, his hand had called him that morning and he'd had a cow that, uh, was, you know, had some blood on her rear end, but they weren't, didn't have a calf with her. And it was way before cabin season. And he's Mm. like, Oh, I got my drone in the pickup. Let's just take it up and see if we can go find something. Anyways, we took it up and, and didn't see anything, but 
after he saw that, he was like, wow, this is really cool. But there was kind of a barrier to entry with his technological uh, sadness right. and, and age um, versus there. Are, I mean, there's some older folks that are, can be could pick it up. They're very user friendly and very easy to fly. Uh, somebody you may look into to getting on the podcast. Uh, I, he called me and I helped him out. Uh, Justin Rader with 100th Meridian Ranching. He's been a, a, a working cows guest. But uh, he called me up. He did not have a drone, and he had a place leased and some cows that had gotten out on a river and no telling how far they were going. And so I uh, I met them over, and they went horseback and went down in the river, and I was able to take up a big drone and start flying and, you know, call them and say, hey, you've got cattle here, here, and here. And it saved them a lot of time of trying to track through brush and grass and everything else, just trying to pick up, you know, where things were at. And so – the options are endless. It's, it's amazing. You, you can say, well, I'm going to use it for this and then you'll have it. And then you'll say, Oh, well, I can use it for this too. Right. And that too. And, and you'll start using it more and more and more. So um, it's one of the best write-offs I've, I've had for sure. Yeah. It, it's not a toy. I mean, we, we got to right. get that straight. I mean, it's yes. not a $1,500 toy drone. Right. It it's is an a investment. $1,500 investment in a work tool that mm-hmm. if you learn to use it properly can save you 10x in time and money in probably the first year. Yeah, especially rough country. If you're bouncing around having to go two miles an hour in a pickup for, uh, you know, all the wear and tear on a vehicle, it, it saves some money there pretty dang quick. So I guess if guys are looking for somewhere to for a 10x in their business, this might be one of them. You know, a $1,500 drone, you can leverage that to $15,000 worth of time and repair savings. Yeah, I think every, each person is different, but um, some operations could really, really take advantage of, of that. And it, it would be a, a very big asset to, that they could add to their add to their toolbox. So, Adam, you're a sharp guy, and I know you like to think about concessionizing and enterprising. Can you imagine what a full-time enterprise for somebody flying a drone in support of ranching would look like? like hmm. I guess I guess the context I'm asking that in is, you know, imagine our listeners sitting in Wichita or Kansas City or L.A. or wherever everybody's at. Sorry if I offend everybody. Texas, Dallas. I know I've got a bunch of listeners in Texas. So they're sitting in a filing cabinet and they're wondering – I'm a techie guy. How can I apply my skills to get out into ranching? So I may need you to rephrase that. It sounds like two different questions, potentially. One, are you asking for a techie guy that wants to get into ranching? Or two, that you're asking if someone wants to get into just drone stuff and benefit ranchers, how do they get into that industry? I, I guess kind of what I'm asking is a hybrid of the two questions. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that that's kind of the avatar that we're you're thinking about with this question. Mm-hmm. And what would a full-time uh, drone flying enterprise look like for somebody like that? I, I think um, it could be multifaceted. I think if you're in ranching country, it could be uh, some operation that's – you know, doing some large, you know, I'm thinking Nevada, multi hundred thousand acre places with very large pastures that are doing cattle drives and trying to pick up, you know, the herd and, and things like that. Um, I think they could hire 
a group of people potentially with several different drones to go out and have a, you know, a drone operator with a, a set of cowboys and be able to go out and find cattle that you might need. I, and then I also think it could be, uh, you know, somebody who's great at video editing and marketing and they could go out to, so for example, um, uh, Deborah Clark, she mentors me and if the Birdwell and Clark ranch, you know, they've, they do the really big herds, you know, five, 6,000 head of yearlings in one herd type stuff. And whenever you get to get videos of drones, with cattle and one big herd moving them. It's really, really cool. And I think there's mm-hmm. lots of opportunity to show what we can do. Uh, you know, somebody in Brooklyn, that New York that sees something like that has to ask if they have a brain, well, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and if they're inquisitive at all, then maybe it'll get them down that regenerative agriculture path and they'll say, Hey, maybe agriculture is okay. And so I think there could be, you know, marketing potential. I think there could be practical day work potential, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity and as technology progresses, it's going to get even better and better with the opportunities that could come up. I hope that answers your question. That was a great answer. I liked it. Okay. I, I did. So last week, DJI came out with a new drone and, you know, we've been mm-hmm. kind of, I've been watching for the Mavic three series, like the Mavic two replacement should have been coming like any time. And we haven't seen it yet, but what we have seen is that new FPV drone from mm-hmm. DJI. And if you just look at the specs, it's not that impressive. 20, 21 minute flight time, but I watched a review on it and it'll fly 89 miles an hour. Oh, I did not realize that. Wow. Doesn't that seem dangerous? Okay, so the biggest barrier I have is when I have a 40-mile-an-hour wind, especially like we'll get these raging wildfires. And I thought, man, a drone would be very – so I'm – as an aside, I'm a pilot, a helicopter and airplane pilot. And so I see the value in a lot of that uh, when there's wildfires and you can – you know, go tell somebody or buzz their house so they can look outside and see that there's smoke pummeling out their back door. Uh, Drones have been a a problem because usually you've got 70 mile an hour winds on those types of days. And if you take up a drone, it's going to be going downwind, even pointed (laughs) into the wind pretty stinking fast. Right. So I could see a drone like that being beneficial. Yeah, it's, and I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I really like the price point of that, but uh, you know, what is the price on it? It's, it's kind of like anything else they've got on their top end of the line. It's about 1500 but it doesn't have a fly more kit. You only get one battery Ooh. with it for that. Yeah. Um, Don't ever buy a drone with one battery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that doesn't work. <laughs> no, three batteries and a 12-volt charger so you can keep it your side-by-side or your pickup. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you bring that, as soon as you recover that drone, you pop that battery out you just used and put it in the charger and get another yeah. one recycled ready to go. That one thing that I don't like that they have implemented on these newer drones like the Air 2 that they didn't have on the Mini and previous ones is they've got an automatic discharge. So if you charge up your batteries after 3 days, they automatically discharge themselves to about 75% and then they'll even start discharging a little bit more after that. So if you don't haven't used a battery within the last 2 weeks, you may only have half the battery life and oh, wow. The intention behind it is to, uh, you know, 
retain battery life over time. It can have supposedly cycle more and, and you're not gonna have to buy batteries as often, you know, instead of every year, maybe every couple of years. I don't know. I, when I had the New York times guys out, George Steinmetz, if y'all guys, if y'all have not seen some of his photography, get on Instagram and check it out. It is phenomenal. But I was just he, looking at the article. I love those photos. Those are his so photos. He, um, it, we had several different photographers. Oh, okay. Some, one, yeah. one was from a guy in Oklahoma city. And then George is, he works for national geographic. So he's, Oh yeah. To like okay. Makes sense. 200 plus countries. Yeah. And, the most um, beautiful photos. In. So yeah. one thing that he taught me is he uses his drones so much that the batteries actually expand, not just when they're hot, they actually expand over time. And so he'll be flying along and it'll expand so much it'll pop out. And then the drone just crashes because now it has no more battery life. And so I think they were having some problems like that on some of their older generation stuff. And so now they've started this automatic battery, you know, it loses power over time or, you know, if it hadn't been used in three days to, to make the life long. Yeah. Self-conditioning routine deal. They're probably just wearing themselves out to make us buy replacements more often. I I want to say that, but yeah, that's Um, what I think about my iPhones. Insurance is another thing we, I, touched on i i bought it for mine uh i think it's i I know i paid 40 dollars a year that may have been on the mini now it may be 99 dollars a year i think if you're going to get into the drone thing starting out for sure buy the insurance uh because it's it'll pay for itself the first time you wreck it and you will have some wrecks if you right you're learning to do it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're inquisitive at all, um, you'll, you'll have some, if you're a male with some testosterone, you'll probably have some wrecks. You you will crash it. You will crash it. And if you have the insurance, it will not be expensive. Yeah. Um, so let's circle back around. I I feel like we've covered drones pretty well. Um, you mentioned insurance. You were just talking about drone insurance. And for some reason I started thinking about rain insurance. So, Let's uh, let's talk about rain insurance a little bit and why that could be beneficial for some producers and why it doesn't fit all programs. Yeah. Um, so the government came out and it's still in the test phases, even though it's been out for oh, 10 years now. Um, it's called PRF, Pasture Rangeland Forage um, Rainfall Insurance. It's a government subsidized program that private crop insurance agents sell. So I'm a private crop insurance agent. Um, and how it works is basically a rancher can insure anywhere from 75 to 90% of average rainfall for mm. their grid. So they've got these grids all across the United States. They're about a 50, uh, it depends on where you are, how far you're from the equator, but about a 12 by 12 or 12 by 15 mile area, your ranch may be in it, uh, in several different grids and they've got historical rainfall data for that grid. And you insure on two month intervals. So basically, if if you wanted to say I want to insure January, February, and March, April, and May, June, etc., then if January, February were ninety percent or drier than average, then it would trigger an indemnity, and you might get paid out. Um, we see as you move further east, it doesn't seem to be a profitable thing to sign up for. Eastern Kansas, Missouri is about as far east as I've seen it be worthwhile you go out to florida and tennessee and some places like that occasionally you'll find a grid that's worth it but generally out west is where it's drier is kind of where there's no rain yeah Yeah. where it seems to to pay um out more consistently because drought is more of a consistent thing and Mm -hmm. um i think it's a great 
program. It's not flawless by any means. Um, it is government subsidized. Um, there's some things that they're starting to work through. It's still in its trial phases. And so I, I hope that it will get better over time. Um, but I, I think it's a good tool in the toolbox. It for the financial investment or lack thereof, because the, the government essentially pays about half the premium. They pay the first half up front. So if I sign up, you sign up in the fall. So if I signed up uh, fall of 2021, it would be to ensure all of 2022. And I would not owe any check. The earliest I would have to write any check would be due October 1st of 2022. So essentially, if you're dry through the first half of the year, they're going to start applying those um, those losses towards your premium. And in a lot of places, you wouldn't have written one check in the last 10 years. All you'd have done is signed up and you'd receive checks in the mail. Um, and so it is, it is the government's way to have crop insurance on rangeland because we don't have measure bushels or anything like that. We measure solely based on rainfall. That's how much forage we get typically is based upon how much rain we get. And so that right. is their way of doing it. I, in an ideal world, there would be no subsidies, in my opinion. Um, it would just be, a, you know, capitalism and, uh, you know, I can raise what I want and I can trade for what I want and commodities are worth what they're supposed to be worth. And, uh, you know, I know beef price, you wouldn't be selling feeder cattle for $1.50. I can tell you that it would be a lot higher than that. But it's the world we live in. If it's a door for another regenerative, progressive rancher to get into the business, uh, if this is a game changer between them making a profit and not making a profit uh, and potentially getting larger land holdings and affecting more land in a positive way, then I'm all for it. Um, so that's kind of my mindset behind it. It's not a tool for everybody, but it's definitely a tool. Right. And thanks for that. So where can people go more if they're interested to learn more about PRF? Um, you can Google just PRF, uh, USDA PRF, and they've got, uh, so it's administered through the risk management agency, which is a branch of the United States department of agriculture. Hey, right. hey, I'm trying to give you an opportunity to make a sales pitch, buddy. Okay. Um, so you can call me, uh, at eight zero six two one seven two two seven eight. We can chat about it. I can pull up your ranch uh, with just a little bit of zip code and a little bit more, you know, an address or something like that. I can look at historicals. I can tell you more about the program. Um, I can give you really anything you need to know about it. Uh, there are also our resources online that the USDA has put out that you can look up to learn a little bit more about it. Or if you need me to send you a flyer or email or something else, just to, to learn a little bit more about it, you can sure do that. But um, it's a case by case basis. And mm -hmm. it can be a little bit overwhelming initially trying to figure it out and learn about it. And so honestly, uh, talking with someone that sales it uh, is, is probably the best way to learn um, and to see if it's a fit for your operation. Great. Do you have a website somebody can go to? Uh, yeah. To so check that out? Um, I, I sell through, it's called Ozark Hills Insurance. Uh, my email is adam at ozarkhillsinsurance.com. Adam at ozarkhillsinsurance.com. We've got a website too, but it's not necessarily anything prf related uh we've got all different other types of insurance and things like that um and then of course my number 806-217-2278 you can call or email or text or whatever anytime if right. you just want me to to look up your place or see if it's fit for you 
I don't think I want to put a phone number in the show notes page, but I will put your email address in. Yeah, there. I was going to say that. Okay, sounds good. You're going to start getting robocalled. There you go. <laughs> I, I got a few. I got a few call lists I could add you to. Good buddy. <laughs> I've been getting so many calls lately, it's ridiculous. I've been getting, like, healthcare stuff right now, because it must be the time that they're turning over things. I'm like, oh. Is your vehicle warranty expired, too? Uh, no, not that, not yet. Oh, but, mine is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my warranty expired on my 1973 Peterbilt. You want to go ahead and extend that out <laughs> for me there, buddy? There you go. Yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> besides your drone... What are some of the other indispensable tools or resources that you have that you use every day? My phone. I mean, honestly, my phone, just because I can do all the social media and all of that stuff with it, uh, is a pretty indispensable tool. I, I think also kind of the friend group that I've developed to bounce ideas off of. I've mm-hmm. got um, folks from California and Idaho to uh, Oklahoma and Texas that I talk to about on a weekly basis, kind of bouncing mm-hmm. ideas off of, uh, other generally or younger ranchers that are kind of in the same, maybe a completely different operation, but they're within the beef industry and, and their ranching that I can kind of bounce ideas off of, I think. And I think we've all got to develop some form of a community to call each other when you're, you got a question or, you know, have trouble or just need somebody to talk to and, um, is, you know, it's a mental health thing. It's a, a lack of experience thing. It's a community thing. There, there's just so many advantages to that. So I would honestly, I'd say my cell phone, um, I kind of try to make sure I've got it with me at most times, whether it be an emergency or, um, I've got a question. So, right. Cool. So how about this? You like to fly and, uh, I remember when we took Wally's school together, I had to come pick you up from the airport. So if you were going to take a cross-country flight, doesn't really matter, the airplane, who would you want to be your co-pilot? Do they have to be a pilot? You tell or they me. just sit in, in the co-pilot seat? They can just be there to keep you company or they can help you drive. Oh, you know, I would probably pick like... I think I would pick, do they have to be alive? Yeah, why not? No, 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 no. We'll Ooh. resurrect somebody for this one. Okay. If we're resurrecting somebody, I, you know, and it, I know it was thrown out on another podcast, but Stan, we bring dead people back for dinner all the time. So you can bring somebody dead back for a plane ride. It, it would be Stan Parsons. I think being a numbers guy, I would love to be able to have a conversation with him. And, you know, when you're in an airplane, you can't just get out. You really can't just mute somebody either. And so they'd be stuck with me. So I think that's who I'd pick. Well, that's great. I like that. That That's pretty cool. So we're starting to wind down here, buddy. You got anything? Uh, what's on your mind? Anything you want to ask me or CK? I would. One, I want to say thanks to y'all for undertaking this because I know now I'm seeing kind of on the back end that this is quite a bit of work, Uh, Mm -hmm. but I think it's pivotal and there's a lot of people that are starting to get into the podcast field and I think we need more of this. Uh, You know, Working Cows is great and Ranching Reboot's great and there's several others that are great, but I would challenge somebody if they're 
on the fence about starting a podcast to go ahead and take a leap of faith and try it out. Um, whether it's ranching or not, whether it's mental health or whether, you know, whatever, right. um, there's going to be you're somebody passionate about, yeah, yeah. there's going to be somebody that's going to be able to, uh, get a lot of good out of it. And so I would challenge them to that. Um, questions. I want to learn a little bit more about CK. I don't know if that's uh, an option or an opportunity. Yeah. yeah. I know Brian pretty well from, from previous stuff. And I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more about CK. Fire yeah. away. I, I get that question on social media and I've got that question several times. Who's like, CK? We'd like to who's know this a little bit hype more. man? I know. Yeah, who's I'm, this chick I'm CK? Let's hear about her. Pretty private, uh, but I'm willing to become more open through this podcast. Uh, so I am from California, from the San Joaquin Valley. So if you n- know California at all, um, it's Tulare County is uh, one of the biggest ag counties in California. So when people, you know, oh, you're from California, you're one of those crazy hippie Democrat Californians. And I'm like, I'm from the good part of California. I'm not any of the, I am a little bit of a hippie. But I, I'm from a very agricultural, rich town. So we're at, right at the base of the, the Sequoia National Park or Sierra Nevada. So we have really fertile, fertile soil and a lot of irrigated of, of systems. So we, we really, I've seen almost every crop raised and animal raised. Uh, it's a huge dairy community and we also have a huge beef community. But uh, as far as, I mean, I guess, what do you want to know? There's a lot to know about me. So I think that's why... <laughs> As like my ag background, um, just kind of grown up around it, went to school, didn't know what I wanted to do other than I, I knew I wanted to do kind of ag related since that seems where I was from. I ended up getting heavily involved in livestock production, thought I was going to go into the feedlot system. I worked at the university farm. I did, I did a feedlot internship with, with Harris Ranch and that was just I mean, that was the hardest work I've ever done in my life, like 60 to 90 hour work weeks. I smelled terrible, but I worked really hard and I learned a lot of stuff as far as like processing cattle, looking at cattle, feeding cattle, and then just learning from other people in the community that work really hard too. Um, I decided that I didn't want to end up my life in the feed mill, in the feedlot system. I felt like that's where I was being positioned and I wanted to be more of a manager. Uh, So... I felt like I wasn't going to be welcomed in the feedlot community as a, a female manager, to be honest. Um, and so I was like, okay, so I'll go into sales. Uh, I worked at Olive Garden and I was really good at that kind of stuff. I felt like I had that foundational knowledge with what they do with training you, with you know serving, you learn a lot with sales. I ended up working for Animal Health International. I hated it. (laughs) I was sitting in a cubicle for for 40 hours a week and I was like, I don't want to do this. Um, I quit that and actually, I don't think anyone knows this, but I actually was a pistachio broker for for a while. Yeah. Um, You know, where I was from, there's a lot of the tree nuts. So there's a lot of almonds. So we're south of Sacramento, so we don't call them amens. We call them almonds a lot of walnuts and I had known someone who brokered walnuts and she loved her job. She loved doing the relationship piece with the ranch or the, the ranchers, I guess is what they're called. And so I was like, okay, well I want to do that, but I'll do the pistachio side. So I ended up working for a pistachio processor and grower and managing all of the grower relationships. Um, and then I, 
in that process, pasture maps started becoming a thing. They knew that I had background in, in feedlot and pasture management. We had transitioned a conventional dairy over to organic. And we also had a rangeland on our university farm that we we took care of the cows on. And uh, pasture map kind of recruited me because of my Chico State ag we have a regenerative ag program to do that and i've been doing that for like five years now (laughs) so i don't know does that answer your question that's a lot of information yeah it Um, does that gives me a there's there could be a lot of other and a whole other episode i'm sure of questions arise from that but i i've had other people say i don't know who this ck person is and i I, I hope that uh, gave them a little bit of a taste of. of yeah, I, I think so. I probably need to be more intentional about getting out there, but I think I'm like you with with not intentionally being out there on Facebook and stuff. I meet with ranchers one on one all the time with Pasture Map, and that's like my that's my best comfort zone is just meeting on with them one on one. But when it comes to like when people ask me to do speaking engagements when they ask me to have an opinion i don't really like to (laughs) um just because i i'm i'm very much don't want to ruffle any tail feathers and so i'm more of a listener than i am about giving opinions but i feel like that's changing with ranching reboot because everyone's like oh i heard your podcast like you you and red hill rancher podcast and i'm like oh you guys actually listen to that that's crazy (laughs) so i have been getting that feedback a lot and so uh thank you for asking that yeah for sure you know the last guest that uh, that we interviewed the last that aired as we're recording this and it's obviously going to be kind of released out of order we got a few more coming up that are going to come out before this one but uh, previous guest ariel greenwood you know she's she's kind of the original grass nomad i mean she's been yeah. everywhere from north carolina to california from montana to new mexico and she does travel back and forth quite a bit mm-hmm. and you know a theme that's come up with previous guests with michael from reverend wild ranch and mm-hmm. with uh, with Hobbs Magaray from Sisters Cattle Company, is the difference in terminology. Okay, so like east of the Mississippi, mm-hmm. everything's a farm. But there's a big swath in here <laughs> through the Midwest and the Plains and the Intermountain West that a ranch has cattle on it. A ranch is a big, big piece of land with cattle on it. And a farm is something with tractors and implements that raises crops. But then you get out to California and everything's a ranch. There's no mm-hmm. farms in California. They call everything a ranch. It's like, oh, Christopher, oh, yeah. Christopher Ranch strawberries. Like, it's exactly. not a ranch. It's a freaking strawberry farm, guys. So there is some interesting terminology going on here. And that was uh, that was just a little rabbit trail I kind of wanted to wander off down. But. But the dairy guys there, they're dairy farmers. They're not ranchers. So it's... I don't think anybody calls themselves a dairy rancher. Yeah, well, even here, here they do don't. You think so? Okay. I guess people who have larger land tracks, you're right. So I don't know why I said that. Cut Maybe that out, there's Brian. some dairy ranchers somewhere, but uh, yeah. here in the Texas Panhandle, they're all farmers. I guess it's just an interesting... Uh kind of an interesting comparison of terminology in the way that, you know, that we don't realize that not all of the language that we use in the industry is universal from East coast to West coast or from, you know, Mexico to Canada, even Mm. from conventional to progressive. So So it's different. 
Like mm-hmm. Brian, you've heard the word pugging up a pasture, right? Like if yeah, it's I know wet out. Means too. So, yeah. so the, the cattle owners of the cattle on custom grazing right now, uh, we're out here yesterday and I was just showing them, we just gotten some rain. I said, yeah, I really pugged this up over here. And they said, pug, what the heck is that? You know, and they're, they're ranchers that have been ranching for over a hundred years. They'd never heard the word pug. They don't use electric fencing. So it's not really ever been an issue. You know, I think in our soils, our sandy or loamy soils, I think with the proper rest, that pugging is not an issue. It doesn't cause compaction. Mm-hmm. I think the guys that are having problems with pugging are in the heavier clay soils or the soils that are so depleted in organic matter that already have a dead hard pan under them. You know, it's got the bulk density of freaking concrete, you know, four inches down at the plow line. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, guys. Your cows did not cause that compaction at four inches. A hundred years of tillage has caused that compaction layer at four inches. Right. Uh, not your cows. Sorry. Yep. I think it's an appropriate time to throw a Ray Archuleta quote out. He says, the only compaction problem on the farm is compaction of the mind. Mind. Yeah. That's good. He said that at Soil Health U. Um, that was 20. Yeah, that was 2020. That was last year, right before... The world ended with COVID. Um, it's 600 people in that main hall. And Ray said the only compaction problem on the farm is compaction of the mind. And you could just. It's true. You could just see all these old farmers going. It's a. Uh, who was it that asked what what is what do all ranchers and farmers have in common? And, you know, now that I think about it, it's like everything always is just it, you can sum it up to a management issue. Like, it's always human barriers that you you have to get past before you can make any changes. And I think that's one of the things that Burke Teichert likes to unpack a lot is he keeps trying to ask the why question. And he gets down to the seventh layer. And by the time you get down to the seventh layer, it's like there's something a human being could have done to change the outcome. And it was a very small change. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, guys, did we leave anything on the table today, Adam? Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? I don't think so. Again, I could go down rabbit trail after rabbit trail, but no, this was good. I enjoyed it. Um, I hope people benefit from it. I hope people uh, are, uh, you know, curious about the drone deal and uh, they look into it and realize that it could be an asset to their operation. So. Well, good deal. CK, did we leave anything on the table today? Uh, no, that was a really good episode. So, All right. very fun. I think we're going to go ahead and get out of here. I'm going to roll through an outro. Mr. Isaacs, it has been an absolute pleasure for you joining us today, and we really appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully you'll come back some, uh, come back again. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, this is Red Hills Rancher. On behalf of CK, my wonderful co-host, and our guest today, Adam, thanks for tuning in. Come back next week for another episode every Monday morning. And sometimes I'll even get crazy and do a midweek bonus episode. And guys, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. And if you're having problems figuring out how to get that uh, to listen, send me a message on Facebook and I'll be happy to hook you up. Guys, we're going to go ahead and get right on out of here. This is Red Hills Rancher. Out. Out.